Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Catalina Martinez. Martinez is a physical scientist and the regional program manager for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Ocean Exploration and Research. Uh, <laughs> it's a long name <laughs> in Rhode Island. Catalina has a long history of involvement with the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science, also known as SACNAS, and the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, and is dedicated to increasing diversity and equity in STEM. She's visiting the Ohio State University to discuss her work with ocean exploration, including her time with the famous Alvin Submersible, and outreach efforts with NOAA. Welcome to the podcast, Catalina. Thank you so much. I'm deeply honored to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, where did you grow up? Sure. So I was born in New York, in New York City, in Queens, uh, but my family moved a lot. My family uh, is with the racetrack horses mm -hmm. and not fancy horse racing like Kentucky Derby. It's uh, <laughs> kind of a, a real uh, basic industry that mm -hmm. doesn't have a lot of money associated with it, right? It's more like a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And the Cuban community uh, really centered around that in the New England region, um, you know, after the revolution. And so my grandfather and my father and a lot of my cousins and uncles and, and aunties all kind of centered around that racetrack. And so we lived in New York while the racetracks were open there. And they came to Rhode Island a lot. You know, it's only a few hours away when the racetracks opened in Rhode Island. And we had two horse tracks when I was a kid in Rhode Island. So we ended up settling there. So the whole community, like a bunch of carnies and trailers, you know, <laughs> kind of moves as a fluid motion. Uh -huh. And we uh, landed in Rhode Island. So that's where I was uh, till I, since I was about five or six years old. Mm -hmm. So I grew up there in a very urban community, mm -hmm. you know, living in what we call triple-deckers. They're mm -hmm. um, apartments that right. are stacked on top of each other, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, so that's where my family kind of gathered. Uh, did you uh, uh, grow up with a large um, Cuban community where, where you grew up and, or other Latinos around? Yeah, so it was a very diverse community, mm -hmm. um, probably predominantly African-American. Mm -hmm. um, and we had this Cuban community, um, but it wasn't that large in comparison to other sectors. Mm -hmm. So probably the largest Latino population in Rhode Island is more um, Puerto Rican and Dominican. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also a lot of other immigrant populations, Southeast Asian populations, Hmong, Laotian, Vietnamese, Cambodian, um, and also um, Irish and um, Lithuanian. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of different sectors were kind of uh, living together in this community, very diverse. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, a, it was an interesting place to grow up. Right. Yeah. Right. What, what led you to a career in the sciences, Catalina? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one to even try to filter through. So growing up in this family, it was... Yeah, from horses to... Right. Well, <laughs> so the horse component meant that I was outside a lot and around animals a lot, mm -hmm. right? So I had that love of nature and the mm -hmm. love of, of all, basically all organisms. Mm -hmm. And that was really passed down to me from my grandfather. He loved animals a lot more than he liked people. And it was very clear. <laughs> so I loved animals. Um, mm -hmm. And I lived with my Cuban grandparents. And so they were uneducated. Mm -hmm. And they had a very traditional mindset. And they came from poverty. And so that, you know, 
between the economic conditions and their lack of education, their belief was that girls didn't need to go to school. Mm. So I was pulled out of school starting in the seventh grade to work, to help the family, but also to take care of my sick grandmother. Mm. So I didn't go to school a lot. Mm. And by the time I was 16, I had dropped out of high school. And I wanted to figure my life out, so I got out of my house. And I've, I've been self-supporting since I was 16 mm-hmm. on my own. Mm-hmm. And I started to pursue education. I, somehow I always knew that I had to basically learn new things to get a better job, to get more of a paycheck, right? Mm-hmm. So I was working to get myself and my mother out of poverty because mm-hmm. I was always taking care of my mother as well. And so I started to study. And I started to, um, you know, learn new things and get better jobs. And eventually I got an associate's degree, which helped lead to other jobs, right? So it was a very long road. Mm -hmm. And after the associate's degree, I was hired to help start an alternative middle school potential dropout students in Providence. And Mm -hmm. that was the perfect fit for me Mm -hmm. because I came from those same communities. I had the same lived experiences. Mm -hmm. There was really nothing those kids could do or say to me that I hadn't done or said to somebody else at their age, right? Right. So I had the right perspective to help with this project. Mm -hmm. And that school is called the Urban Collaborative Accelerated Program, and it's still going strong today. So Mm -hmm. that was in 1989 that I helped with that program. Um, And so while I was at that school, Those are still five of the most important years of my life. Mm. So I was surrounded by all of these incredibly dedicated teachers and staff Mm. who were just so determined to help these students succeed. Mm. And then the students were so inspiring because despite what they were going through at home, Mm. and I knew exactly what they were going through at home, they came to school every day and they tried so hard. Mm. So I worked hard, too, right alongside them. And I took one class a semester um, and I started my college education through, you know, being really inspired by mm. them. Mm-hmm. And I also worked with, with the students, mostly the Latinas, the young girls whose families were keeping them home from school. Mm. So they were starting to go through the same things I had gone through. Right. So I had a van in the school and I would drive around and I would knock on the doors and I would pull those girls out of their homes and I would make them come wow. to school. And, you know, the families would would be telling me that they needed to stay home and take care of their younger siblings or they needed to go work in the mercado. Mm -hmm. And I would say, no, she Mm -hmm. goes to school until she's 16. That's the law. Mm -hmm. So I started to have an after school program as well and and teach those young Latinas that they had other options and that we could help them, you know, pursue their goals. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started to study science and I started to explore the coastline. Rhode Island is an ocean state. Mm -hmm. We have Mm -hmm. a gorgeous coastline. I learned how to scuba dive, and I fell in love with the ocean. And so I chipped away at my education for many years. And by the time I could enter um, a four-year university as a matriculated student, I was 28 years old. Mm. And by then, I was so in love with the ocean, I was just didn't really understand any practical application for studying it. <laughs> I had no idea what it meant to become a scientist. Mm-hmm. All I knew is I could finally go to school, so I'm going to study what I really want to know about, and that was the ocean. Mm. I wanted to understand what drove this massive, incredible system, and, and why did all these weird and wonderful creatures exist because of it? Mm. I was so fascinated, so I started to study as much about the ocean as I could um, with my limited science background, mm-hmm. and I had to work very hard um, and I, you know, also met a lot of amazing people while I was in college who helped me to kind of really focus my, my efforts and my thoughts and my dreams and go to grad school. Right. And so it was really about um, meeting people who helped me along the way and just following something that I was really interested in. Right. Um, so you're a physical scientist, correct? And what does a physical scientist do? 
a physical scientist is a real misnomer in the federal government. Mm-hmm. It's, there are very few categories of job titles. Mm-hmm. So I'm classified that it's a classification as mm-hmm. a physical scientist. But I have not done true physical science in 18 years. That's the <laughs> truth. So since I came into NOAA, if you make a choice sometimes to go into a particular sector, you're kind of walking away from physical science in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. So in my role, I enable the science, right? So I'm more of a project manager, program manager, um, behind the scenes, enabling the science to happen. Mm-hmm. For I've been there now for 18 years. In my first, I'd say, seven or eight years, I used to go to sea on ships for research. Um, two or three months a year, I'd be on ships. Mm-hmm. But again, I was expedition coordinator. I was sort of the person who was making sure the objectives could be met. I wasn't truly doing the science myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I was enabling the scientists to do exactly what they needed to do. Yeah, I want to back up a little bit because um, you mentioned right all the work that you did did with the middle school girls, yeah, Latina girls, and and even taking the extra step to picking mm-hmm. them up from you know their homes or wherever they are so that they could um, that they could go to school. And I want to ask, and I know some of this motivated you to continue on to go to a four year um, college and and so on. But who supported you? In those years, did you have mentors? Did you have somebody that yeah that pushed you? You know, like you pushed the uh, the girls, the younger girls. Definitely. Um, so I consider myself a people collector, mm-hmm. and I believe that if you surround yourself with the right people, the people who champion you, but also you see that they champion others, right? Those are the people you surround yourself with, and if if you become one of them yourself, mm-hmm. and you you know, elevate others. It's always about lifting as you climb, right? Right. And if you're surrounding yourself with people who do the same thing, anything is possible. Mm. So in that school, in UCAP school, was really where I met a group of incredibly supportive, dedicated individuals who were doing that, mm. you know, putting these students before themselves, mm-hmm. you know, coming from such challenging circumstances. And they were going to succeed because they were surrounded by these amazing individuals. We supported them. They inspired us, and mm-hmm. I definitely was surrounded by all of those teachers and staff who, who helped me find my way, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Uh, can you tell us about your work with ocean exploration? Sure. So I started with the Ocean Exploration Program back when it first was in its infancy, which is a rare gift for the federal government to start mm-hmm a high-profile, exciting program like Mm. ocean exploration. That's crazy, right? right? Sounds exciting. (laughs) Yeah. And so they started this program in 2001 with the mandate of exploring the world's ocean and going to parts of the world's ocean that we know little or nothing about, which is most of it, right? Mm -hmm. We've only really looked at maybe 10% of the world's ocean, Mm -hmm. and it covers three-quarters of our planet. It's ridiculous. We live on this little tiny sliver of land, right? So I started stalking the program while I was in graduate school, And I knew about this internship or this fellowship, really, that would allow me to uh, potentially work for NOAA. And I had learned about NOAA and was determined I was going to work for them in some way. And knowing that they started this exploration program, and I was was so excited by that notion, Mm -hmm. um, I got a second master's degree. um, So I did them back to back. So I got an oceanography master's degree and then a marine affairs master's degree to bring policy and science together. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that would make me more competitive when I applied for this particular fellowship. It's called the John Knauss Marine Policy Fellowship that brings people with very strong science backgrounds to Washington, D.C., to work either with the executive service, so a federal agency like NOAA, or with the legislative branch. Mm -hmm. So you go to Capitol Hill and you're influencing policy directly, Mm -hmm. right? 
So the, the focus of this is to bring the science and policy together. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I could be more competitive, so I did all those things kind of tactically and still stalked the ocean exploration program. <laughs> so I got lucky, and I applied for this fellowship. I was accepted, and then I got to compete for their second-year Canals Fellowship you know, positions, mm-hmm. and I got in. And then they hired me after my first year, and I've been with them ever since. Mm-hmm. So that's really how I was able to enter their program. These fellowships are like gateways to you know opportunities that are like no other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so important. And I got very lucky um, to be selected, but it, these opportunities are are very much kind of not uh, not really available for people of color mm-hmm. who apply mm-hmm. for them. There are so many potential um, challenges and barriers to getting through all the the rigorous requirements and application processes and protocols. And then there's so many places on the back end where you can get filtered out through just procedure and, mm-hmm. and you know, behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So a big part of what I do on the inside, I do a lot of diversity work for NOAA. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I focus on is looking at the barriers to entry into these gateway programs for underrepresented minorities, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. trying to um, look from, be- from the beginning to end the entire process so that nothing's taken out of context. And you know, try to really understand where are people dropping out? Mm-hmm. Why aren't people applying? Mm-hmm. You know, so so that we can potentially break down some of those barriers to truly make these opportunities and spaces and places open for people of color. Right. And I do want to get to that here in a moment, but I wanted to ask you, what has been the most exciting thing that you've done in ocean exploration uh, in this yeah. all, all these years that you've been doing this? I've been so lucky. I've done a lot of amazing things with the Ocean Exploration Program. Having gone to sea for two or three months a year for many years, I got to experience a lot of really amazing new discoveries mm-hmm. and meet incredible people doing wonderful things. But certainly the coolest experience I had was going down in the Alvin Submersible, Mm -hmm. and that was in 2004, so that was a long time ago. Um, But I had been on many cruises with the Alvin team on the um, Atlantis, this special ship with an amazing crew. Mm -hmm. And I had become sort of family. You know, we we knew each other very well. I would spend a month, six weeks every year on the ship with all of them, Mm -hmm. and I would coordinate the expedition, but I never got to dive myself in the submersible. So we planned it, this one particular cruise, where I brought one of the UCAP science teachers with me for a month in the Gulf of Alaska, which mm-hmm. was so special, so that she could bring this science back to her students right. at UCAP in Providence. Wow, that is amazing. As we walked out onto deck, we were met with this young man who approached me, and he said, did you used to work at UCAP school? He <laughs> was one of our first students. Wow. And here he was, a <laughs> brand new um, able-bodied seaman on the Atlantis. Um, his name's Patrick Newman. I believe he's still there with this team. He mm-hmm. was absolutely amazing. So we had Patrick on the ship. We had the teacher on the ship. And I was there all connected to UCAP. Mm-hmm. So we planned a dive where I would go down in the Alvin submersible. Patrick would remain in what we call top left to, mm-hmm. to speak to us while we were down there. And this teacher, Carrie, she would stand there with Patrick and call UCAP kids. So we had this three-way conversation where I got to be at the bottom of the ocean in the Gulf of Alaska, mm-hmm. down at almost 3,000 meters, and speak to the students there at UCAP in Providence through Patrick Newman and their teacher, Carrie. Wow. So it was quite an amazing experience. That's definitely the coolest thing I've ever done. What was the reaction of the students? Could oh, you, my could God. Could you hear? Could you see? <laughs> I couldn't see them. They couldn't see me, but we could hear each other. Uh-huh. And we took pictures. You know, we took pictures in the Alvin Submersible, and they took pictures in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And we took pictures in Top Lab. So we, uh, we, it was just a really special moment for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to have, you know, 
we impacted this amazing student, Patrick, and here he was in this incredible, right. and he, this career trajectory really, you know, brought him into, you know, places he, I'm sure, never really dreamed of. Mm-hmm. So it was a very special experience, yeah. Great, great. Catalina, you alluded a little bit about um, the disproportionate number of women, uh, specifically women of color, that enter into this field uh, or the type of opportunities that you mentioned earlier. Um So scientists in in general, there's not a lot of women of color specifically. Tell me about this experience of being the only one and also um, some of the work that you're doing to to fix that, right? (laughs) The thought of fixing that, my goodness, I am certainly doing my part, um, but it is rife with challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Like any field that you're the only, you know, mm-hmm. the STEM fields are, are not the only um, fields that are have such a lack of diversity, right? right. But, you know, these, these deeply ingrained w- white male, really, mm-hmm. majority, you know, histories, cultures, they persist. Mm-hmm. And they are very, very difficult to break into. Um, and just because you can get a few, you can recruit a few people in who are people of color doesn't mean that that environment is conducive to their success either. Right. So you have to simultaneously be building up a cadre, not just individuals, but a community mm-hmm. of people of color in these spaces and places, create the environment that it is conducive to their success. And just right. because it's conducive to a particular segment of the population's success doesn't mean that it's inclusive and equitable mm-hmm. for everybody. Mm-hmm. It is not. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to create equity. You know, you have to create inclusivity. It's very difficult. These these environments have been around for a long time. These organizational cultures didn't just pop up. Mm-hmm. You know, they're deeply historic. Um, and, and there's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of, um, you know, insecurity, I guess, or feeling threatened of having to share power or share space with people Mm -hmm. who are different, right? So you experience that a lot. And then it's very difficult for a a person of color, but especially a woman of color. Mm -hmm. You know, women have made some advances into the sciences, but not enough and not much, really. Um, Very incremental, but certainly not women of color. Mm -hmm. So when you are the only, you carry this, what we call a cultural tax with you. You know, you, you carry all of this burden with you where you're constantly um, dealing with microaggressions. You're constantly, um, f- you have fear of uh, stereotype bias or you're afraid to speak up if you don't know something. People already assume that you're not there on merit. Mm. They already tell you that you're not there on merit. Mm. Um, you have all of these um, feelings of not belonging, right? Mm-hmm. You don't feel like your contributions are taken seriously. So many barriers to feeling a science identity, let alone an identity within that particular field. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to really unpack that and try to, um, you know, assemble individuals who are going to tackle those things tactically. Um, and it can't just be a one-off effort. You can't just put together, our, you know, a team to recruit a couple of individuals into a space like a faculty um, a, a, in a STEM faculty and expect that that is now a diverse faculty. Oftentimes, they don't stay very long because the environment is is hostile to them right. finding success. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that they're not receiving the support that they need once they get there. There aren't any you know, onboarding programs for them. There mm-hmm. aren't any specific mentoring programs that share those unwritten rules that, you know, who, um, you know, provide the knowledge and information that they need to be successful. We know that 
on college campuses and within faculty and other um, in other areas that people of color are not receiving the same level of mentorship, championing, networking opportunities, mm-hmm. professional advancement opportunities. We know that that's the case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do we tackle all of these things simultaneously while we are trying to build this cadre of individuals within spaces to make that a place that people want to be, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we know that diversity is is essential to the success of every field. You know, those, those data are out there. Mm-hmm. But how do we move the needle? It has to be a simultaneous effort in many different areas. So it's very difficult, very difficult to tackle. Yeah. Right, right. So how how have you used this experience to advocate for inclusion and representation? Your own experience, but also the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, so when I first walked onto a college campus, I was 28 years old, mm-hmm. right? And I had come from a very diverse community. Um, and it wasn't until I walked onto the University of Rhode Island campus, which is a majority institution, it's mostly white folk, right? Mm-hmm that someone called me a spick and it finally meant something. Mm-hmm. And it came from a professor. And mm-hmm. it was within my first year of being there, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. So it was through that experience that I knew I had to create safe spaces for conversation with people like me mm-hmm. who didn't have those doors open to them. So we started to gather and, and support each other and build a network of support and champion each other and share unwritten rules and share, you know, resources and information and give each other books and all the things that we know are happening around us but not with us, mm-hmm. right? So we created this situation, and, and out of that, here I am, you know, 25 years later, all these years I have worked in the field of diversity. I turned those experiences into workshops, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and I built this, this community of individuals who continue to do that work as well. And I, I still work with a bunch of those people. I work with an incredibly talented group of diversity professionals at the University of Rhode Island, mm. as well as within NOAA. So within NOAA, we have some affinity groups that have just been amazing. And it's mm. only in the past, I'd say, five or six years that this has really come together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we work on issues of recruitment, retention, and Um, advancement simultaneously. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to tackle these things internally mm-hmm. and externally. So I can tackle them externally through the University of Rhode Island team that I work with, mm-hmm. and I can tackle them internally with the incredible people I work with within NOAA. And it's this diversity and professional advancement working group that I work with in NOAA um, that is just filled with talented, dedicated, amazing individuals. And, and we work on a lot of different efforts. Mm-hmm. Probably the most important one that I mentioned earlier is to really assess these gateway programs that are, you know, bridges to opportunities that we can't even imagine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You start to build this professional network that you would never have access to otherwise by getting these fellowships and internships or these early career positions. Mm-hmm. And they are so often closed to people of color. You can see that in the demographics, mm-hmm. you know. So how do we, on the inside, assess those programs, assess it for The, the policies, procedures, and the attitudes and behaviors associated with, you know, who's, who's at the table when selections are being made, right. who is doing the recruitment, you know, who's running the programs, you know, what are maybe some of the blind spots there as well. If you can tackle a lot of those things internally, then you're trying to break things down um, in many different areas at the same time. Um, and so that's, that's where we try to um, work on all of these things simultaneously, yeah. Right. 
You mentioned something that I don't think um, happens in general a lot or a, a, as part of this strategic plan, right? Um, and it happens at places of higher education and, and maybe organizations throughout, you know, uh, different um, uh, places. Um, and is this idea of um, high recruitment, retention, and advancement. I think a lot of our institutions um, are very good at recruiting And that's it. Yes. (laughs) They lack um, the ability or they forget to um, build a community. And we end up um, uh, losing a lot of people because they don't feel like they belong. They don't feel like that there is a space for them. And they don't really see themselves. um, Well, they they don't see the institution or the organization committed to them and to their success. So they end up leaving. Um, and, and I just, I mean, I, I really like that you mentioned those three things, right, that are important. Uh, if, you, if you're going to talk about diversity, you, you must have um, all these three things in place. Yeah. And what you see is all people want to look at is numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So they want your demographics. They want to count you. But you're, just because I walked in the door doesn't mean I'm going to be there three, days, three years later. Right. And just because I walked in the door doesn't mean I'm going to advance at the same rate and level as my white peers. Mm-hmm. We know that that is not the case because we can look at the data. Mm-hmm. But mostly what you have is high attrition rates, as you said. Mm-hmm. So even within you know, um, undergraduate you know, students, right. so you see that you have this level of interest of people of color and women in the STEM fields as they come in the door. But within a year or two, you've lost them. And Mm -hmm. why is that? So we have to tackle, we have to go, you know, into many spaces and tackle the whole pipeline problem, right? Mm -hmm. So we lose so many of them early on. What are those challenges? And then you look at, you know, representation matters. Mm -hmm. So if you get a few, you know, students through the door as an undergrad, but they see no faculty who look like them, who can represent their community, their culture, they can't see them in that world. Mm-hmm. So that's a, one of the barriers. There's so many barriers, but that's one of them is representation matters. And then if you're lucky enough that you had a couple of very determined students who persisted, you know, and, and, and that is really, you know, an amazing thing to get them through the door. They persist. They get that degree. You get them into grad school. Well, they're tackling the same situation. So now they have to be really determined individuals. And, you know, again, I'm one of the exceptions and not the rule that I stuck with it because you get into grad school and still no representation around you in the student body, no representation, no representation in the faculty. How do you build a science identity that way? How do you build a sense of belonging? It's very difficult, if not impossible. And then you expect them now to want to go into academia? Well, they've just had all these years of not feeling like they belong. It's very hard to expect that they're going to want to stay there in the workforce. Mm-hmm. So you lose them that that, you know, they call it the leaky pipeline, but my god, it's a it's a fire hose. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they go off and they try to, you know, now make their way in a different sector, say in the federal government where I am. Mm-hmm. Again, very, very limited representation, certainly extremely limited in the sciences. You might see them in, in, you might see people like yourself in different parts of the federal government, like um, administration support or, or, or other areas. But in the sciences, it's very hard to find people of color. And then you experience things like marginalization, mm-hmm. um, lack of onboarding, no mentorship, you know, all the things that might help you find out your way or find a place that you feel like you belong those support systems are often not in place. Mm. Um, And then to try and find leadership development programs that you're not just filtered out of or get being championed to even get to apply for them. 
you know, so, so they're very limited opportunities. And again, we can look at the data. We know that we lose people in these pipelines in many different areas. And, we, and it's not brain surgery, right? right. The cha- the, unfortunately, the problems that I've been ta- – in my workshops, the, all these things that we've been talking about for 25 years, mm. they have not changed. Mm. We have the same conversations today that we had 25 years ago. Thankfully, internally, there are some changes being made. And like I said, we have these groups within NOAA who are really working hard. Um, But it's, you know, it's very, um, again, limited in terms of its scope, right? Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time to to see a change in terms of the needle moving in any direction. So this leadership and advancement problem is one thing we're tackling internally, the the, you know, recruitment problem is the easier one to tackle. But then retention, what do you do to create right. this, this environment that is conducive to the success of everyone, that is equitable? So everyone mm-hmm. is being you know, advanced at the same rate and the pay scale is equitable. And those things are very hard to tackle. Um, but thankfully, these conversations are happening. And that's a beginning, right? Mm-hmm. That's a beginning. And the film that we're showing this afternoon here at OSU is uh, called Can We Talk? Difficult Conversations with Underrepresented People of Color in STEM. Mm -hmm. And what that film has done, Kendall Moore, the director of the film and the filmmaker, she's a professor at University of Rhode Island in the the Department of Journalism. She creates these documentaries that bring all of these issues to bear, right? Mm. She brings social justice issues, environmental justice issues, and indigenous rights to bear in her films. And this particular film came out of work that we were all doing together um, at the University of Rhode Island um, on the lack of sense of belonging in these STEM spaces and places for students as well as faculty and staff, right? Mm -hmm. And they have a faculty member at URI named Brian Dewsbury, and he's actually a professional in this area. He teaches inclusive pedagogy. And through the conversations we were all having, um, Kendall and Brian determined that film would be an effective medium mm. to create a, to create this um, kind of topical piece to use to elicit dialogue around these difficult race-based conversations. How do we get these conversations out from behind the closed doors where a handful of minorities sit and have these conversations? How do we bring this into the spaces and places that we can actually maybe affect change? Mm-hmm. And that's how this documentary was created. So it does that. You know, Kendall interviewed a bunch of us, and she put this incredible film together. And we've been traveling with it for the past Mm. year. And um, it's been so powerful, Mm. so powerful. And the conversations that we have after screening the film, um, which I hope uh, we have a lot of people come to tonight. Mm -hmm. I think it's at 4 o'clock. You know, the conversations span the gamut. But they can have very emotional responses to the film. Um, Some people... um, want to talk about things like white allyship. What can we do better? And we can't make any inroads without white allies, right? Mm -hmm. So the next topic that Kendall has tackled in her series of films now, they're becoming a series, is white allyship. Mm -hmm. And she is screening that film today in Rhode Island for the first time. So it's now a two-part series. That's great. Yeah. So it's the sense of belonging or the lack thereof for Mm -hmm. people of color in STEM and then white allyship. Yeah. Right. Catalina, this year you were recognized at the Women of Color in STEM conference for your work on diversity leadership. Tell me about this award and what it means to you and other Latina women like you to receive such recognition. Yeah, my God, I still can't believe I received that incredible <laughs> award. Um, this award, congratulations! Was, by thank the way. <laughs> you so much. Thank you so much. I. This award was such a big deal, and it was so meaningful. Um, it was so meaningful because the people who nominated me are people who really value 
the work that not only I do, we all do it together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I was nominated by two of my peers within this diversity and professional advancement working group in NOAA and two of my peers at URI. Mm-hmm. And th- they're all my good friends as well. Um, and it's, so the award meant so much to me because of that. But also, in order to receive these awards, your institution has to put a lot of effort into putting an application package together, mm-hmm. right? That takes a lot. And so the individuals in the Office of Inclusion and Civil Rights at NOAA, they worked so hard to put this package together and to submit it. And it's a peer-reviewed award from all of the industry sectors mm-hmm. across the board, Boeing, you know, Pfizer, NASA, <clears throat> all of the big industries. Mm-hmm. And so this is the only diversity leadership and government award that gets given out once a year. So the fact that I was selected is such a is such a massive thing. I still can't <laughs> believe I got the award. Um, so but, exciting. you know, it also has to do with the package that is submitted, right? Mm-hmm. And five other women of color in NOAA this year got awards. Mm-hmm. Another one was a peer-reviewed award, Jimmy Sims. And so the fact that there were six of us who received these awards this year, this has never happened before, mm-hmm. also means that our team within NOAA worked very hard for us and put these packages together and submitted them on our behalf. Mm-hmm. So it takes, a, it takes a village to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And the experience was so special. I mean, it's such a big deal that they assign us a speechwriter, right? <laughs> and we get up on stage and we have to wear gowns. And I, you know, I got my I hair and makeup. Video. Yeah, it's so, so crazy. I've never had to buy a gown before. I, I got my hair and makeup done. It was crazy. But yeah, it, and I got introduced by... You know, Admiral Gallaudet mm. within NOAA. I mean, it was so powerful and amazing. My, you know, my family friends were there. It was, I've never had anything like that happen before. So it was very special, very special and meaningful. Thank mm-hmm. you. Have uh, you had other uh, um, maybe Latina uh, scientists that look up to you and say, this is, this is great. I mean, congratulations, but also an inspiration, right, for us to, do, to continue and to do and to work together with you doing this type of work. Always, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why we do it, right? It's, it's powerful. Just um, maybe two weeks ago, I received an email. I still need to get back to this young woman. Um, someone I met at Sackness maybe two years ago, I think. Um, yeah, she came to our screening of this film at Sackness because we've screened it at big conferences too. And she and I met after the screening. And she's emailed me a few times and stayed in touch. And um, she just sent me a note. She's also a Cuban-American. Mm-hmm. And she's been so inspired by you know, my story and the mm-hmm. things that um, that she has seen me do. And she now works for Noah. Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> it's so amazing. So, you know, we so it's just powerful. And yes, these these you, it's our job at this point is how I feel is, you know, we have to open the doors for them, for the young people to come behind us and get through the doors so we can help them get into positions of influence and leadership and power and help them navigate all the barriers and challenges that maybe we did not get to navigate so well. You know, the glass ceiling is not created equal, right? We know that. And so how do we help them get into these positions where they are going to be the wave of change that's going to shift this culture? We know that diversity is increasing in this country. We know that U.S. minorities are the ones driving the growth, but it is not represented in the STEM workforce yet. So it's our job to keep opening the doors so that they can get into those positions and change that culture. Right. Yeah. Catalina, what are some of the things you have seen as a result of this work? And you had just mentioned, you know, this this woman that reached out to you and now works for NOAA as yeah. well. Um, what 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 other things have you seen? Um, and and I I also want to ask you about SACNAS a little bit, right? Um, you mentioned earlier 
that uh, we lose a lot of the students, right, as they come into majors in, in, in STEM, uh, especially women of color or just minorities in general, and we lose them. Um, but what I believe one of the ways for them to stay and to find, find uh, community is through organizations like SACNAS, right? And, and SACNAS at OSU is um, a baby still. Uh, we've only had it... Um, I know Marcela. My, Marcela started, um, you know, uh, this this work. Um, Marcela Hernandez and I and I, and I want to say four years, uh, barely. So it's fairly new, right? Uh, and, and it's um, it's also surprising at a university of this size, right? But but I know that her work and the work that Sagnas is doing at Ohio State is helping students maybe see themselves and find community, even if they don't find it within their, maybe the department or within the faculty that they interact with on a daily basis. They can find community through SACNAS and the conferences and, and the meetings that they have, et cetera. So there's a lot of questions or a lot of things, um, but um, what, what would you want to say about no, that? No, you're so right, and thank you for bringing that up because – there are some things that we can try to provide guidance to these students to f- try to feel connected and to to build resilience and persist, right? You have to surround yourself with people, th- the right people who are going to help champion you and provide you guidance and support. And you do the same for them, right? Um, and uh, joining affinity groups is a big part of that, you know? So you have to, you have to be proactive, you have to self-advocate. So when you come, especially a community as large as OSU, mm-hmm. this is a massive right. school. It's like a city. I This might be the biggest school <laughs> yes. I've ever, the campus I've ever walked onto. Right. You know, I come from URI. It's much smaller. So this is a massive institution. You have to be proactive and look for affinity groups that you feel you might be able to engage in and be surrounded by people who are like-minded to some degree, who you can, you know, network with and find that support. Because you know, isolation is not the answer. You, you The answer is community, mm. always. And so if you can build that community through groups like SACNAS, absolutely. And, you know, SACNAS chapters sometimes come and go on campuses, and it's based on, you know, a few champions, right? A few students who come in, they create a chapter, then it might go away for a few years, then more students come in or a faculty member starts it back up. That's happening right now at URI. We had a group of very dedicated students. They started a SACNAS and ACES chapter. ACES is American Indian Science and Engineering Society. Mm-hmm. So they start, and sometimes we start those simultaneously. Um, and there's a lot of benefit to both. And those conferences are... Um, both they're my two favorite conferences every year, and I try to go every year. They're so student focused. Um, Aces is much more uh, focused on indigenous science and indigenous scientists, but it's also a very diverse community. And SACNAS has more morphed into, um, you know, it's kind of reestablished itself um, with having just more of a, an equitable lens, an inclusive lens, mm-hmm. right? So it's extremely diverse. Um, so these two spaces are also where a lot of industries go to recruit minority students, right. you know? They, they are so student-focused, it's very special. So not only do they get to showcase, you know, their talents and their science, they also go there to get opportunity and network, and they create specific experiences for students to network in the fields that they're interested in. So these are very important conferences. So I try to go every year. NOAA has built a very special relationship with SACNAS and ACES. Um, So we try to host all kinds of experiences to teach students, you know, how do you put together a competitive application for these gateway, highly competitive experiences that are going to be, you know, bridges to opportunity in your future, right? 
They're career builders. They're professional networks. They're all these things. They're job opportunities. So how do we, uh, first of all, internally break down the barriers to entry for them, get them to apply and not have them filtered out on the back end, and help them at the front end build community around them on their campuses so that they are getting the help they need to build these competitive applications. Because without support, again, don't isolate yourself when you're developing these applications. There's a There's a tactic. There are strategies that you can learn to, to get successful at these. You know, it's not, um, it's not that easy. So you need people to share that kind of knowledge with you on your campus, right? right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Catalina, is there anything else that you would like to share with us about your work, about this movie that uh, we're, we're going to get to see um, tonight here at, at Ohio State? Um, maybe future plans? Um, I don't know, anything that, that you would like to share with us? Yeah, sure. I think I would love to see a high turnout tonight for the film. Um, We're hoping, I worked with the Office of Diversity and Inclusion here, um, we're hoping that this will just be the start of a conversation. We really want to understand from the students and faculty and staff, you know, how is it on campus here at OSU? Do you feel a a science identity here? Do you feel affiliated with your, um, whatever the degree program is you're connected to? Do you feel a sense of belonging or isolation or marginalization? And and what can, can the community here at OSU do to try and mitigate those challenges? challenges. Um, So this is also a way to um, self-reflect and understand different people, right? So oftentimes um, you can build, you don't really build any kind of alliance with another type of person unless you have a personal experience with them, right? We know that through international travel and things like that. All of a sudden you're you're building this um, alliance with another group that maybe you didn't even pay attention to before. Mm-hmm. So just listening to the voices and the important stories of the people in this film can help really uh, have individuals self-reflect and maybe use their own. Every one of us has a personal power mm-hmm. to to build bridges to inclusion for others. And if you understand what's happening around you, if this film sort of lifts the veil, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you didn't understand what people of color were going through around you. Well, this film will give you an idea of what's happening. So once that veil is lifted, I hope they don't look back. Because now, through your own personal power, you can change the outcome of someone's situation by your actions, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what we hope comes out of um, showing films like this at OSU, for sure. Great. Uh, Catalina, thank you so much for your story, for the work that you do, and for this conversation. And thank you for all you're doing. This mm-hmm. is an amazing program. Thanks. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. 